Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Tupelo, Mississippi. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Thirteen-year-old Lee Ochi was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, timid teen who loved dogs, pizza, and hugs. Basically, she was all of us. Her mom, Vicky, and her dad, Donald, were both in the military, and she was lucky enough to be born at a base in Hawaii. As perfect as that sounds, her parents' marriage wasn't as delightful. The two split when she was young, and with military parents, that meant that from then on out, visitation would involve a lot of traveling. Lee went on to live with her mom for most of the time, but would travel across the country and sometimes even the world to spend time with her dad. While there was always physical distance between the two, they were still really close. Though by the time she was 13, her dad told crime blogger 1983 that the two would only get to talk about twice a month. Lee had moved to Tupelo, Mississippi, a southern town small enough for people to write country songs about, while her dad was stationed all the way over on the East Coast in Virginia. At that point in Lee's life, both of her parents had remarried. But in the first week of August 1992, Lee's mom's second marriage started to fall apart. The two separated and Lee and Vicky stayed in their four-bedroom, three-bathroom house at the end of a cul-de-sac on Honey Locust Drive all by themselves. Reports say it's actually Honey Locust Avenue, but when I mapped it out, it says drive, so maybe it changed, maybe it didn't. Regardless, Lee's stepdad, Barney, moved out and into an apartment. It was a lot of house for just Lee and her mom, but it was a really, really good neighborhood with manicured lawns and sometimes even backyard pools. It was undoubtedly the perfect place to raise a family and the last place anyone would ever think something terrible might happen. On August 26, 1992, the remnants of Hurricane Andrew were rolling into Tupelo, which meant that there were some gusty winds, a ton of lightning, and a heaping pile of thunder. Vicky told crime reporter Dave Lore that Lee was afraid of storms, so that particular night, she slept with her mom. The following morning, at 6.45 a.m., Vicky's alarm went off. School wasn't in yet, so Lee didn't have to get up, so her mom hopped in the shower, and by the time she got out, she said that Lee was awake. Over the next half hour, mixed reports state that Lee, still in her nightgown, ate breakfast with her mom while Vicky read the paper, and by 7.35 a.m., Lee's mom was headed off to work, leaving Lee home alone for what CNN reports was the first time ever. The old rule of thumb was that kids could be left alone once they were 12, but at 13, this was the first time Lee had ever done it. It was a Thursday, so I couldn't tell you what she did every other day that summer. It's never been reported on, but it looks like it was a pretty big deal, and Lee had certainly been schooled in stranger danger. She knew not to open the door for anyone she didn't know, and according to Dave Lore, she and her mom even had a special kind of phone code so Lee would know when it was safe to answer the phone. This was back in the days where only fancy people had caller ID. Vicky would call the house phone and let it ring twice and hang up before calling back again. That was Lee's signal that it was her mom calling and it was okay to answer. Vicky only worked about a mile and a half away from the house, but knowing that Lee was afraid of the storms, at 8.30 a.m., a little less than an hour after leaving the house, she called the home phone to check on Lee. 
She did the typical ring twice, hang up, then call back routine, but Lee didn't answer. She called again, but got no answer. Vicky started to panic, so she called her own mother to go and check on her. Vicky's mom only lived five minutes away, but Vicky decided she couldn't wait. She told David Lord that she left work to go check on Lee herself. When she got back to the house, she was surprised to see the garage door open. Not only was it open, but the sensor light that trips when it's opened was still on. That meant that the door had to have either been opened within the last few minutes or someone had to have walked by the little sensors that keep the garage from closing if something passes or is under it. It seemed odd considering Lee didn't have any plans until later that afternoon when her grandma was going to be taking her to an open house at her new middle school. It seemed like there was no reason she should have needed to open the garage door, especially during these storms that she was so afraid of. Vicky went inside only to find that the door to the house was unlocked. Lee would have known better than to leave any door unlocked. Once Vicky got inside, she called out to Lee, but just like her phone calls, got no response. It wasn't long after that that she started noticing the blood. There was spatter on the walls and a small pool of blood on the floor. A detective told Dave Lore that the pool was about the size of a fist, so it doesn't necessarily look like it was from a fatal wound, but it was likely a pretty serious one. Vicky followed the blood, but Lee wasn't anywhere to be found, not in her room or any of the rooms in the entire house. According to Vicky, she even checked the shed out back and in the pool, but there was no sign of her daughter anywhere. By 9 a.m., just an hour and a half after leaving her daughter at home alone for the first time, she called 911 to report Lee missing. Police showed up within minutes, and so did Lee's grandmother, Vicky's mom, and her stepdad. I can only assume that Vicky called both of them. Police processed the house and in doing so, found even more to be concerned about. There was no sign of forced entry, and according to the Sun-Herald, they found blood and hair stuck to a door frame, consistent with someone about five feet tall, which is only two inches off from how tall Lee was. They also found a small trail of blood leading from the hallway into the living room and to the back door. Along with that, they noticed a pink film on top of the bathroom counter. It looked like what might be left over if someone had been trying to clean up blood. They tested it, and sure enough, it was blood. But the strange part was that police couldn't find any rags or towels that anyone might have used to do said cleaning. And it didn't make a ton of sense. Why would someone clean up the blood on the bathroom counter, but not any of the other blood in the house? And again, what did they clean it up with? Because police couldn't find anything. They couldn't even test the blood to see what might have been Lee's because in her 13 years, her blood had never been drawn. They didn't even know her blood type. Within hours of the investigation, it was clear that something bad had happened 
and forensic investigators did a full sweep. In the hamper in Lee's bedroom, CNN reports that they found the bra and nightgown that she'd been wearing when her mom left for work. According to the Sun-Herald, it had blood on it consistent with someone who had been injured above the neck, which tracks with the blood and hair found on the doorframe. Deductive reasoning would lead you to believe that Lee had a serious injury to the head, which she likely got from contact with the doorframe, and she was clearly losing a significant amount of blood. At what point during the chaos that injury would have created, would someone, be it her or anyone else, have stopped to make sure that the bloody clothes were in the hamper as opposed to on the floor, let alone changing at all? Maybe it means something, maybe it means nothing. While all the blood evidence was being analyzed, what was missing from the house was also being noted. Based on reports from the Charlie Project, CNN, the Sun-Herald, and the Hattiesburg American, I was able to put together the following list. A pair of clothes she'd gotten for her birthday six days prior, a pair of shoes, her glasses, and a sleeping bag. I've only seen the sleeping bag reported on twice, but I feel like it stands out the most. Was it something she kept out in the open? And if not, who would have known where it was? Did someone go searching for it? Was this evidence that after a serious injury to the head, she somehow walked out of the back door with it and disappeared into a storm? Or is it possible that the missing sleeping bag was what was used to clean up the blood in the bathroom? Did someone use the sleeping bag to get Lee out of the house without anyone noticing? Her house was at the end of a cul-de-sac, and no matter where you turned, you would have been facing another house. Even though there wasn't any concrete evidence as to what exactly happened in that house, police believed pretty quickly that foul play was involved. But what kind of foul play? There was a ton of information to consider. Lee knew not to answer the door for anyone she didn't know, and who would have come in through the garage and then the door to the house? If we're thinking intruder, that's two whole points of entry they would have had to have used, instead of the usual one, like one door or one window. And while it's not a scientific fact, I feel like most intruders take hurricanes off, especially when it comes to houses surrounded by other houses at the end of small cul-de-sacs. But then you have to think about the fact that there were no signs of forced entry. Did she let someone in through both doors? Or is it possible that something was done to Lee by someone who already had access to both? Everyone's brains were running in Saturn-sized circles, but they didn't let it distract them. Someone else was going to try and do that later. With scent articles in hand, police released bloodhounds to try and track Lee's last steps, but they weren't able to pick up on anything. It was frustrating, but also somewhat expected when you consider how much it rained that day. It was frustrating, to say the least, because they couldn't even figure out what direction she might have gone in, whether she was by herself or with whomever might have done something to her. According to an interview Lee's father Donald did with Crime Blogger 1983, Vicky didn't immediately loop him in on the severity of this situation. He says that she called him the day after she disappeared to let him know that she was missing. He said he told her to check with Lee's friends because she was probably with one of them and that it wasn't until a few days later that he says Vicky told him about the blood. 
He wound up getting emergency military leave and flew himself, his wife, and his kids out to Mississippi to start looking for his daughter. He was able to stay there for four weeks, searching woods and fields in the surrounding area. According to the Commercial Appeal newspaper, his ability to stay there as long as he did was thanks to a community effort. Hotels donated rooms, churches donated childcare, sometimes until midnight, and car dealerships donated money so that they could afford the necessities needed to exist. Throughout his searches, Donald told the paper, I don't think she's alive. I'm just getting prepared for the worst. WWKZ Radio donated free airtime for a 60-minute message Donald recorded. It said, You've deprived me of holding her. If you've killed my baby, just call me and tell me where she is so I can bury her properly. Thirteen days after Lee's disappearance, Vicky got an envelope in the mail. It was addressed to Lee's stepdad, but he wasn't just listed as the person it was sent to. The Huffington Post reports that he was also listed as the return address. That being said, it was postmarked from Boonville, a town about 33 miles north. It's also the town where someone reported to have seen Lee in the passenger seat of a vehicle in a McDonald's drive-thru. The sighting wound up being unfounded, but the postmark didn't go unnoticed. The envelope had six stamps on it, which was way more than necessary. Whoever sent it really wanted to make sure it got to him, even though he didn't actually live at the house it was addressed to anymore. Vicky let him know that he'd gotten some mail, but when he opened it up, the only thing inside was Lee's missing glasses. Someone had sent her glasses back to her house. But why? And why address it to someone who doesn't even live there anymore? The sender didn't ask for a ransom. They didn't even write a taunting letter. They just sent the glasses back. Period. That's all. With crazy shit like that happening, the local police called in the FBI. They sent the envelope and the glasses off to their lab for processing, knowing that if there was anything on it whatsoever, they knew the FBI would find it. But the FBI didn't find anything. No fingerprints, no DNA, absolutely, positively, zero evidence was collected from neither the glasses or the envelope. The stamps back then weren't stickers and most people licked them to get them to stick, but all the adhesive on this entire letter had been wet with water, not saliva. And there wasn't so much as a fingerprint smudge to give them even a partial print, which anyone who wears glasses knows is a feat in and of itself. The glasses got investigators absolutely nowhere, and it made everyone question why they were even sent. But the police had an opinion. In one of the most odd responses to a piece of evidence that I have ever seen, the Charlie Project reports that police believe the glasses were sent in an effort to throw off the investigation. I had to sit on that for a minute to try and figure out what that even meant, because her glasses certainly feel pertinent to the investigation, whether they found something on them or not. So what would make them feel like it was an attempt to throw them off? Were they already looking into someone? Do they think that that someone sent the glasses to make it look like police were looking into the wrong person? But how would that even work? Were police looking into someone inside the house? After the glasses reappeared, Lee's mom told the commercial appeal that they made her believe her daughter was alive, that she had thought Lee was dead until she got them, but now she believes she's alive. A sergeant with the police department had a different opinion, saying that with every day that goes by, the hopes of finding Lee alive grow more and more dim. 
More than a year passed with no breaks in Lee's case until November 9th of 1993, when a man working on a soybean farm near Nettleton found a human skull. According to the Hattiesburg American, the skull was identified as being Lee's, but then it wasn't. The commercial appeal quoted the medical examiner as saying, the incorrect identification was made due to erroneous dental work being provided, which seems wild because dental records are pretty unique. It seems hard to believe that even her old dental records would somehow match someone else's. A detective told the paper that the correct dental work had been sent to the state lab the day before the skull was found, and with that, couldn't explain what the medical examiner meant by her statement. The skull was later identified as belonging to a missing 27-year-old, which just makes the misidentification even more strange. The skull of a teenager is vastly different than the skull of an adult. In summary, it was a mess, and Lee's parents had to go through thinking someone on a farm had found their daughter's skull, and then had to go back to dealing with the fact that she was still missing, and they had no idea where she was or what might have happened to her. Throughout the investigation, things got pretty heated. Rumors flew about who might be responsible, and I refer to them as rumors because even though the accusations are extremely specific, I haven't been able to find anything to back them up. Because of that, I won't put them in here. That being said, let's talk a little about who was ruled out. Both Lee's father and her stepfather took polygraph tests and passed. Her dad was in Virginia at the time of her disappearance, and her stepdad had an alibi. Vicki and Lee's stepdad did eventually get their divorce a couple of years after Lee's disappearance, and he unfortunately died not long after that. When it comes to Vicky's polygraph, or should I say polygraphs, things didn't go as well. A former major with the Tupelo Police Department told the Sun-Herald that Vicky was given three independent polygraphs, one by the police department and two by the FBI. He said that she showed deception each time. While we know polygraphs aren't an exact science and can sometimes be complete crap, it definitely didn't sit well with everyone when they heard the news. But Vicky has never been named a suspect and has seemed to brush off any negative reactions her results caused. When it comes to what Lee's parents believed happened, they both have vastly different theories. Vicky believes that a man named Oscar McKinley, Mike Kearns, is responsible. He knew Lee from church, and according to the Sun-Herald, nine months after Lee disappeared, he abducted a 14-year-old girl from her home in Memphis, about a 45-minute drive away. He allegedly picked her up under the guise of giving her a ride to school, but instead took her to a remote location, sexually assaulted her, and let her go. Kearns pled guilty and was sentenced to 24 years in prison, with 16 suspended, giving him a whopping eight-year sentence for what he did, but was released after less than half of that time. To break that down into a more realistic statement, his 24-year sentence was imaginary. It then became an imaginary eight-year sentence, and he served less than four. If you're thinking Kearns probably wasn't deterred from shit after that embarrassment of justice, you would be correct. Less than a year and a half after he was released, he kidnapped not one, but two people, a married couple. He sexually assaulted the wife and was sent back to prison. That time, he was sentenced to 20 years, but from everything I've read, it looks like he was up for release again in 2019. Yeah. 
According to the Charlie Project, Kearns has refused to take any polygraphs in regards to Lee's case, and the theory that he may have been involved certainly doesn't seem implausible on the surface. But in an interview Lee's dad did with Crime Blogger 1983, he said that Kearns was ruled out as a suspect because he wasn't in the area at the time. He actually got pretty specific and said that Kearns was 40 to 50 miles away. It's worth noting that I couldn't find any police confirmation of that in any form of mainstream media, but because it was said in an interview by Lee's own father, I figured it was worth mentioning. When it comes to what Donald thinks happened to his daughter, he believes that someone in her family is involved. I've combined two separate interviews to put his theory together. In one he did with the Sun Herald, he said, People called me and contacted me all the time. It was mostly stuff about like, she was a great little girl. Or, look at her mother, look at her mother. I was already doing that. Though he added, I don't know if her mother was involved. Keeping that in mind, he told Crime Blogger 1983 that he doesn't think her stepdad was involved, but he does think he knows what happened to her. In the years since Lee's disappearance, the investigation has pretty much stayed where it's always been. It's not a cold case and investigators continue to follow every single lead, but as of today, no one has ever been publicly named a suspect. That being said, a detective told crime reporter Dave Lore that they do have evidence they've never released to the public, which does include a person of interest. And looking at Lee's case as a whole, there are so many odd things to consider. There was only an hour or so window when something could have happened to her. I've seen accusations that they believe Lee was actually killed the night before, but that wouldn't explain the freshness of the blood found in the house. Police have been pretty adamant in interviews that it was still wet. So fresh that there wasn't even a film over it. I dug pretty far into the drying process of blood when I was researching this case, and there are so many factors like how much blood there is that it's hard to narrow down a time frame, but the fact that it was so fresh does seem to match up with the timeline of her injury happening sometime within that hour. But if whatever happened happened within that hour, when did it start? And who could have been involved? Who goes to someone's house at the end of a cul-de-sac surrounded by other houses, walks through two points of entry in the middle of a massive storm to hurt a 13-year-old who just so happened to be home alone for the first time ever? And if she was taken out of the house after her injury, which it seems like that's what happened, how did they get her out without anyone noticing? The blood trail went to the back door, but even still, there's a house that backs right up to hers on the street behind theirs. And where, in one single hour, could she have gone or been taken? And why hasn't she ever been found? Then we have the glasses. Why would someone send her glasses, of all things, back to her house with no ransom request, no note, no anything? Why would they address it to and from her stepdad who didn't even live there anymore? Why were they sent from the same county that the McDonald's sighting happened in, even though it was clear that the girl in the passenger seat in the drive-thru was not Lee? Lee's case is one with more questions than answers, and it seems like everyone has a theory as to what they think happened. So I want to know what you think. 
Share it with me on social media or tonight on our live or in our Facebook group. If you have any information as to what might have happened to 13-year-old Lee Ochi, please contact the Tupelo Police Department at 662-841-6491. For photos pertaining to this case, check out Lee's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where we go live and talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe on Apple or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Mm-hmm.